This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Okay, um, refocusing education is the, the title of this debate. Um, and I wanted to start by setting out some assumptions from the, the, um, which underpin my refocus, if you like. Um, the first assumption I will set out is, uh, I'm going to give you four, is... Um, the assessment, and particularly exams in this context, have, uh, as with all assessments in education currently, have far too many purposes. So exams can give us access to the next steps in education or um, into work, into life. Uh, but also, the opposite of that, it limits our um, pupils' access to those um, opportunities, so funneling pupils into um, those next steps. Uh, assessment is used to measure the improvement and the success of schools, um, particular departments within schools, um, particular teachers potentially, um, and also therefore enables us to rank schools against each other in those lovely things that teacher associations uh, find so delightful, those league tables, um, and encourages competition between schools therefore. It also enables us to compare... Um, standards uh, nationally, either over time um, or uh, with other countries internationally. So it allows governments to proclaim on the success or otherwise of our education system. Um, and somewhere in there, there is the need to actually assess and examine pupils' understanding, knowledge and skills that they have learnt through their school careers. Exams, of course, are part of a high competition and low trust system currently, that's my second assumption, which I would say stultifies and removes any incentive for innovation. So in many instances, pupils sit their exams um, individually, uh, they are written, possibly online, but uh, there is no possibility, therefore, for um, cheating, if you like, or collaboration, or improvement. Uh, and where we have had um, instances of that through coursework, for example, there are then accusations um, uh, of cheating, of trying to game the system to achieve better grades for pupils, better grades for schools. Um, we have that resultant competition from league tables that means schools actually choose um, Exams potentially that will meet the needs of the the, um, the school in the league table that will help them to maintain position in the league table rather than in the interests of learners. Obviously, these are all stories that have been in the press recently, and of course, this morning's announcement about the um, vocational qualifications may lead into or be part of that debate. Um, schools also potentially buy into um, the exam package, if you like, um, by buying the, the textbooks and the teacher guides and the training. And, of course, we also had those stories before Christmas about um, whether uh, examiners were um, in, in influencing the choices of exams and uh, uh, of schools and teachers. Um, and, of course, exam boards also operate in a highly competitive market. And in a competitive market, um, you have to price your exams competitively, which potentially means little money for uh, research and development, but also means often little incentive for um, 
innovation and changing things up a bit in order to um, think about the, the assessment um, of pupils. Of course, Cambridge assessment knocks that on the head by holding such debates as these. I have two slightly more positive assumptions now, one of which is about the curriculum. My personal expertise and interest is, comes from primary and early years. Um, so my assumption about the curriculum is that it describes everything children do see, hear, or feel in their setting, both planned and unplanned. If you have any knowledge of the early years curriculum, you'll know that comes directly from the foundation stage curriculum. Um, but I believe that's a challenge for us and should refocus our thinking on curriculum. In England, we do limit pupils' experiences very early on, much earlier than most. Uh, and we limit choices in many instances to the, um, the examined subjects. And even where there are broader curricula on offer, often we find that um, the, the, the implicit message is that it is the examined subjects that matter most. Um, so there is a challenge there for us in trying to uh, look at curriculum before we look at assessment. Um, finally, I want to ask about what kinds of young people we really want. And my final ass assumption is that the kinds of young people we want are, they are, and they will continue to be, questioning citizens, people who care deeply about the world around them and their relationships, people who are confident, who are innovative, who are creative, and who are thoughtful. And I don't care if you want to be the prime minister or a postal worker, um, a parent, an inventor, or a firefighter, and I have a five-year-old who wants to do all of those things. I think those need to underpin everybody's learning. So exams have too many purposes, and we're too hung up on competition to be innovative. I believe curriculum should be about everything, and currently... It's limited to examined subjects, and that tells us a great deal about what we value in education. I believe we want questioning, creative, innovative, and challenging, in the best sense of the word, pupils, and pupils who are challenged. ATL's view on curriculum is that we should have a national framework that is slim, and that the content should be developed locally, um, by teachers working together with others with an interest in education and in pupils' learning. And reflecting on what we've heard this morning so far, it seems to me that what we truly need in refocusing education is to focus on the needs of the pupil, but in doing that, we need a truly confident profession. We've heard stories about the vision of schools uh, leading to a, a change in the way in which they develop curriculum and assess We've heard about using um, teachers being confident to use real-world experiences. That's another phrase from the early years curriculum. Um, and starting from where pupils' interests are and engaging pupils in the curriculum in, in innovative ways. Um, I believe we need to be focused on teachers researching and challenging the curriculum, as well as pupils being able to do that. Um, we need to be looking at relationships. We need to be developing pupils who can, um, and teachers who can be involved in, in projects of sustained shared thinking. Um, and we also need a great deal of assessment based on observation, which, include, which involves a huge flexibility for teachers to be able to continue to focus on pupils' needs and learning needs, um, 
But that also includes, that also involves a great expertise in subject. If you need to be developing curriculum both at a, a kind of school level and at a classroom day-to-day level in a particular subject and across subjects, then you need to know your subject and how it develops, how children's learning in that subject develops intimately in order to continue to be flexible across the day and the year. Thank you. Um, Richard. Uh, Richard's going to come at this, I assume, from a very different direction since he's a chartered engineer with 23 years' experience in the electricity industry, um, covering an enormously wide range of things that I suppose one one does over 23 years. Um, So, Richard. Uh, Thank you, and uh, thank you for the invitation to be here. Um, Yes, I'm very much not an educationalist. Um, and therefore uh, my contribution today will be from, from, from outside looking into the educational world and, as a, uh, and to some extent as a customer of what, of what education provides. Um, National Grid's commitment to education I think is, is, is up there amongst um, uh, the, the, most of the large companies in this country you know, care about this and we certainly do and we want to spend some time and effort and, and, and so on on it. Uh, Why is that? Uh, We published some research about three years ago now on perceptions of engineering uh, as a particular subject amongst parents, young people, and teachers. And there were some very worrying conclusions from that, um, which I'm sure Paul and uh, and others from from, from our area of of life will will, will recognize. Um, Engineering has um, some perception problems. It's not seen as a a rigorous academic discipline necessarily, although it very much is. it's not necessarily a choice for perhaps the most able students who, who, who could go into any one of a number of professions. Um, and we need to do something about that for all sorts of very good economic, social, and, um, uh, and, and frankly, survival reasons. Um, as a gas and electricity utility, we do like to say to people, well, if you think that's not important or you think that's rather dull or uninspiring, uh, try living without it for a few weeks. Um, and uh, you know, we think we make a pretty vital contribution to um, modern society in every sense, and that is underpinned by science and engineering skills. Um, so some of the issues that we, we discovered were, um, say, engineering is not a career of choice. Um, there was a focus group we did where a teacher very worryingly said, why would I encourage students to go into engineering? Um, that's what their fathers and their grandfathers did, but the factories have closed. It's not a modern subject. It's not what they need for the 21st century. Uh, Nothing could be further from the truth, Uh, and this essentially is uh, one of the main motivations for companies like ours getting involved in this stuff. We started to look into, well, what's going on in schools? And, of course, there's a huge variety of practice, including some very excellent practice. Um, Our concern is generally more with with the average and the the, the not-so-average. STEM, the science, technology, engineering, maths subjects are not particularly joined up in schools. Uh, I go around a lot of schools uh, these days. I don't meet too often examples of D&T teachers working closely with their maths and physics colleagues uh, on common projects and so on, and yet this is the essence of engineering. Why is that? What is it that's driving those behaviours, or what is the barriers there? Because most people tell me it's common sense that that should happen. Um, There's something about the incentives. What is it that schools are required to do? What are teachers incentivized to do? What are their targets? What's driving them? And I think that needs uh, a lot of looking at. Something we know 
uh, or anyone in, 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 in any business or organization that's ever uh, been involved with performance indicators or uh, that kind of thing. You, performance indicators, it seems to me, always drive some form of perverse behavior or some undesirable result. It's necessary frequently to change them, to balance them, and to ensure that they're actually achieving the objective that you want at the end of the day. And I'm not quite sure that's happening in education. Um, schools very much respond to the climate that's set for them, and I think that's, um, that's something we need to, we need therefore, to be continually talking to government and other people about. There is some, um, uh, some alternatives. There is some excellent practice going on. We've heard this morning from a number of people, including the JCB Academy, that, that, that we've got to know very well. Um, some examples of how things could be done differently. And we're excited about that. We're excited about the University Technical Colleges movement. Um, we're excited about schools that can teach science and engineering in a very different way, but not let up one iota on the rigor of this thing. Um, these are rigorous academic disciplines that um, you know, deep knowledge of science and math is really important for successful engineering uh, in this country. Um, you know, it is not a, uh, a profession or, a, or an area that um, can be relegated to uh, a second uh, option for those that are not quite um, able to cope with maths and physics. Uh, it's got to be uh, for everybody, um, and you know, we, we are really looking forward to working with um, other schools on how to do this much better. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, now I call upon uh, Dale Bassett. Now Dale again comes from a, a, a different direction because he's uh, a director at Reform covering uh, public service reform as a whole. So although he is familiar with curriculum and qualifications, he has written on police reform, economic policy, and edited a book of essays on the creative industries. So he's coming, once again, from a slightly different direction. Dale. Thanks, Venice. And uh, I mean, actually, that, I think, is where we need to start, really. Um, you know, we talk about refocusing education. Well, uh, I think we should, we should try and figure out what the end point is. What is the purpose of school education? Um, and I think every single person that has spoken this morning has given their take uh, in, in some way, shape, and form uh, on their answer to that question. Um, and I think, actually, there's a lot of agreement. We think school education should allow pupils to progress to and should prepare them for work and or further education, higher education. We want to develop you know, responsible, competitive, global citizens. We can argue over the specific language, but I suspect that every single person in this room has an idea of what we want, if you like, the end product of a school education to be. And I don't think many of us would disagree with each other. The question then is, what is the means of delivering this? And in the context of this conversation, what should the curriculum and qualifications look like in order that we achieve that goal? Um, one interesting idea that was floated in the uh, expert panel report of the National Curriculum Review was uh, the goal of getting children um, ready to progress at the end of primary. Well, I wonder if this is also the right approach for 16. Um, if rather than uh, sort of, uh, as assuming that children should be kind of um, going off in all sorts of, um, uh, of different directions by the time they're 16, or you know, assuming that each child has some sort of built-in capability and we just need to kind of find out what that is, if actually what we should be doing is saying at 16 they need to be ready to progress to whatever it is that they're going to go on to after that. So what's the desired relationship between qualifications and curriculum? 
Well, to answer that, I think we need to understand what schools actually do. And here there is a really important distinction that Tim is always banging on about between the national curriculum and the school curriculum, and the former being very much a subset and not a dominant subset of the latter. And I think there also needs to be, and there isn't at the moment, an important distinction between the school curriculum and qualifications. And in particular, as Richard was just, was, was just talking about, um, qualifications being driven very much by incentives, in this case primarily league tables. Pedagogy, I think many, most, if not all of us would agree, should be learner-centric. Um, and we've heard some really interesting examples, particularly the JCB Academy this, uh, this morning, about how that can be effectively done. But to what extent should curriculum be learner-centric? Well, I think to some extent. Um, and I'm going to sort of d d divide this into two categories, first in terms of subjects and then in terms of the content of those subjects. Well, subjects, um, and, and many of you will have heard me talk about this before, I would emphasize the importance of a core in terms of developing the kind of core knowledge and skills that all children are going to need in order to be, to use this term, ready to progress. Um, it's worth pointing out that Alison Walsh's review um, last year uh, highlighted the international trend to delayed specialization um, the expert panel report um, says, quote, England narrows its curriculum for the majority of pupils earlier than more successful nations, uh, and indeed proposes more compulsory subjects at Key Stage 4, not fewer. That said, there should clearly be room around that core for a pupil-specific curriculum to some extent. So what about the content of those subjects? And again, here we have um, this debate between, if you like, sort of core content and very specific or very detailed content. Um, to quote once more from, from, the, from the principles of the, of the national curriculum, the national curriculum should set out only the essential knowledge that all children should acquire and leave schools to design a wider school curriculum that best meets the needs of their pupils and to decide how to teach this most effectively, which I think is pretty much what you were saying, Nancy. Um, now, hence the focus on learning outcomes, uh, defined in terms of core knowledge and skills. And to use the distinction in the national curriculum review, um, if attainment targets are sufficiently well-defined. In other words, if we're sufficiently well-defining what our outcomes are going to be, um, and, and they should be in any case, they need to be, are programmes of study as such really necessary? Do we need to be laying out the roadmap on how to get there, or is that going to be different in each case? Um, very striking, I thought, that the Secretary of State uh, a fortnight or so ago uh, decided to get rid of them in the ICT curriculum. It's going to be a big experiment, but one, interestingly, that a lot of people working in, in that field um, who've been agitating for change seem quite positive about. Not everything should be part of a qualification, but the reality is that qualifications and the incentives that drive the selection of qualifications drive what happens in school. In practice, qualifications define the entire Key Stage 4 curriculum in the vast majority of schools. So, in order to get the curriculum right, it seems to me that we need to reduce the scope of the incentives at Key Stage 4. In other words, make them cover or account for less of what schools actually do to get less emphasis on qualifications overall. So then we'd be looking at a, a picture of fewer, fewer qualifications that allow or encourage a broader and deeper curriculum in terms of skills and knowledge. And here the type of assessment is key. 
Um, Simon alluded to it earlier. I would argue that validity in terms of assessment has been sacrificed on the altar of reliability. And we still don't, particularly at GCSE, have assessment that actually gives teachers the freedom to teach in the way we say we want them to teach um, and to give pupils to develop, uh, the freedom to develop the skills that we say we want them to have. So what's the means of delivering our education that will ensure progression to and preparation for work, further education, higher education, that will build the kinds of citizens that we want? A combination of core subjects and content defined in terms of outcomes and a school curriculum and pedagogy that is appropriate to each child. So I would contend that qualifications at 16 and the national curriculum, if you have one, should define the core or minimum, not the maximum or totality. Um, and I would float the possibility that perhaps the English baccalaureate in some form, not necessarily its current one, might be an effective way of doing that. Um, just a, a final point, um, picking up on the, the concept of a, a three-year key stage four, as was, as was floated by, by Tim and his colleagues, um, which could allow more space in the curriculum to ensure that every child could achieve that minimum and the qualifications can, can assess this in terms of skills as well as knowledge, and to ensure that there's more room for non-qualification-focused curricular content. But what I think is really important here is that we have to remember that just because something isn't part of a qualification, it doesn't make it irrelevant to how pupils will do in the qualifications they do sit. Extra qualification learning will also contribute to the development of broad and deep knowledge and skills, which will then be reflected in qualification outcomes. Or, to put it another way, less time teaching to the test might actually mean that pupils do better in the test. Thank you. Thank you very much. A uh, central theme of Dr. Graham Atherton since 1995 has been uh, his focus on widening access to higher education. He now leads Access HE, a new organisation enabling higher education institutions to collaborate in widening access activities in London. Over 30 HEIs inside and outside the capital are working together via Access HE uh, in 2011, 2011-12. Uh, uh, so I think Graham's probably going to touch on that. And again, he's coming from the, from the area of, of seeing what comes out of schools and what is delivered into HE. Thank you. Uh, I think always the, the challenge at the end is to build on what everybody else has said, not to replicate what already has happened, of course. Um, and I think, yes, I do come at this really from the engagement of the higher education institutions angle, really. Uh, and I think I'm building on what they all said about progression. How does one prepare learners to progress the educational system. I think also, I'd agree again with Dale, that I suppose today we spoke a lot about what, indeed, the sort of learners that we want to see emerging from the school system. And I think it, it stems really, I would say, from the sort of challenges that these learners will face in the 21st century. And I think, I'd, I, in me, I'd rather go from that angle rather than what sort of learners we want to produce. It's what challenges they need to face, really. Is it for us to say what sort of learners the people they should be, it's more what do they have to deal with in their lives and how will that differ from what we have to deal with in our lives. And I think there's a number of, of factors we could point to there in the 21st century they'll have to deal with. A different sort of labour market, an hourglass-shaped labour market with more higher-skilled jobs, more lower-skilled jobs, but not so much in between. A different sort of non-working and working environment, much more defined by IT and technology a different sort of health and welfare system, much more individualised. And, of course, also the sort of shocks, the black swan sort of shocks that you see hitting society. 
that we, uh, we didn't anticipate and can't anticipate, like what we've, well, we have probably can't anticipate what we've seen in the world economy in, in the last few years. And also, alongside that, perhaps, for our young people leaving uh, school now, the prospects in the Western world of a long-term growthless prosperity. How do you have prosperity without growth? Which seems to be on the agenda at least for the next 10 years. The only thing that comes out of that for me, really, how do you deal with those challenges, how do you prepare young people for those challenges, is to teach them to learn how to learn. And one will see to extend their time, perhaps, in education. One of the key themes across the West of the last 100 years is more young people spending more time in education. And I make these arguments now because I think it's important to look at the arguments for continued progression into higher education. Because they, of course, are not accepted by all. I'm not saying that higher education should be the expense of other things young people are able to do. Yet at the same time, if you look at the challenges young people have to face in the 21st century, continued education, and some of it particularly in what we describe as higher education, would seem to be very important. But for that indeed to, to happen, and for that to enable our young people to be best prepared for the 21st century, I think it has to look at how we engage higher education more meaningfully in the curriculum, as well as the assessment. I welcomed uh, what Simon spoke about this morning in terms of the greater engagement in Cambridge assessment of higher education institutions in the assessment procedure. But that indeed is the easy bit. It's the easy bit to get academics to sit around meetings and talk about what should be taught. What does more systematic, meaningful engagement across sector mean? And this means not perhaps just engagement of higher education within the schooling system, but engagement of the schooling system within higher education. Probably part of the problem in this is the assumption that schools have much to learn from HE. And HE has little to learn from schools. Some may argue it should be opposite. And perhaps schools have much to learn from HE, particularly in how they teach their learners. But I think that sort of systematic engagement uh, is, is indeed a major challenge. And I think it, it stems perhaps either finally offer some thoughts on how we could produce more of this systematic cross-sector engagement. And I think we need it. All we spoke, what we spoke about today, one of the key problems in our system is that those who receive the learners blame those who sent them for any problems they have. Secondary schools blame primary schools, post-16 blames pre-16, and universities blame everybody. So how do we get over that? I think one of the key things is, again, the exchange of perhaps of people. How do we again encourage more teachers to have a meaningful place within HE? More higher education to have a meaningful place within schools. I'm not in favour of all the coalition's policies, particularly from the widening access point of view, despite yesterday's figures, the increase in fees. However, perhaps uh, every cloud has a silver lining, every crisis has a result, that kind of thing, there, that perhaps the motivation will be placed upon higher education institutions to pay more attention to their students and those who bring them their income will encourage them to more meaningfully engage with schools at a much earlier stage. And perhaps also in the schooling system, the change and shift to more academies, more independent and flexibility, which I do approve of, will encourage more space within the school, broader curriculum, for HE to play a part. And I think it was encouraging to hear the views that we think of the curriculum as a wider thing than just the core curriculum. And there is space within there for much greater, more innovative partnership between higher education and schools and colleges. 
But I think really that has to be where we need to progress in terms of if we're good. And finally, my key interest is access to higher education. For that to be continued and grown and taken forward in the 21st century, there has to be that more meaningful and systematic partnership. And hopefully, again, by having the opportunity presented by new policies, we may see that happen. Thank you very much. Right now, ladies and gentlemen, comes the most important part of the day, which is you. Uh, who would like to kick off? I have lots and lots of things here. I could, I could start with one of these. Uh, and indeed, I will do so while you're all uh, considering things. Um, Tony Gardner, wearing his London Mathematical Society hat, of which he has several, I know. Um, Tony's asking, uh, which other comparable countries or systems manage without curriculum specialists? either in the ministry or in a linked agency. Tony, do you want to tell us a little bit more about the... Are you assuming that if we don't have specialists, we get better curricula? I think the question is almost enough. I, I can quite understand why QCDA was sidelined, but since then I haven't heard a single squeak that this cannot last. You cannot ask civil servants to do what takes Roger Francois and others years and years to gather in experience. Somehow we have to get back to having a central bunch of curriculum specialists who build up that expertise on which we can depend. It will take a long time, more than five years, more than a parliament. But somebody's got to start it. That's my view, sorry. No, no, thank you very much. Anybody, anybody want to pick that up at this stage? Or we can come back to it in a moment. I'll come to the panel from time to time. And if the panel wish to add anything, can they try and wave uh, uh, at the side for me? Um, and slightly related to that, which is actually talking about the sort of multiplicity of um, curricula that are now breaking out. We heard, we heard this morning from a number of different uh, people. Um, and... Annette, and I'm sorry I can't read your surname, from the Association of Science Education, um, is pointing out we now have several different models uh, in academies and groups of academies and different kinds of schools with different ideologies, aims and objectives. And in fact, the main underpinning of all of these uh, is, in fact, the assessment system. But if you wanted to move between schools, and there is quite a lot of movement between schools in the United Kingdom, um, is that going to be enough? Nancy, your, your um, uh, members are presumably taking people from different schools and sending them off to different schools. Does an underpinning of just assessment help here? Or do, would you like to see a much more common curriculum between all schools? I think, um, I mean, as, as I said, ATL's policy is a, a slim national curriculum framework which, which should give some opportunity for, for movement. But I think our... Our focus has been too, too much on trying to make everything the same and too little on being able to um, trust teachers to, to work out where pupils are and what they have done. If we focus on you know, actual very narrow syllabuses, so you come to, to me having studied um, for a year of GCSE, I don't know, um, you know, World War II, and now we're doing medieval history, that's, that's a bit of a problem. Um, but in terms of actually the, the skills and the knowledge and, and the understanding underpinning those issues... Um, 
we ought to be able to, to trust teachers to be able to find what pupils know, what pupils can do as they arrive in school, um, and to be able to build from that. Thank you. Um, I, I, on a similar sort of line, um, Julian Starkey from the uh, University of Warwick points out that uh, there appears to be a split emerging, which is that the curriculum in schools is becoming more diverse, and I think we heard that this morning, um, but there appears to be increasing regulation and prescription in terms of the assessment. Do people think that's a, that's a contradiction, or does it, does it follow on? If we're going to flex one part of the system, do you need to tighten up the other? <coughs> And have we got the right flex and the right tightening? Um, Dale, you, you've touched on this in the past. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm not sure that's entirely true, um, if, if for no other reason than when you look at what this government has done. They've, I mean, they've essentially uh, allowed a broader range of qualifications to come into the system. They're now chucking a load of qualifications out of the system in an attempt to get rid of, uh, of, of perverse incentives. Um, but, of course, this isn't about actually changing what schools are allowed to do. It's about changing what is going to count in the league tables. And this, bring, you know, I mean, this, this really sort of brings us back to this important point about, you know, we just cannot allow the latter to entirely define the former. Um, I think it's right to say that, that we shouldn't underestimate the extent to which that is a, a mindset shift for schools and teachers, um, and indeed for, for, for parents. I, I was very struck um, earlier by, by, by exactly what you were saying about you know, the need to retrain parents, essentially, to have a different conception of what education is going to look like and what the outcomes of that are going to be. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, I mean there absolutely will remain a lot of diversity there and there should remain a lot of diversity between, um, be between schools in terms of qualifications and in terms of curriculum. Um, touching on Annette's, uh, on Annette's point, um, you know, just because we give schools freedom over their curriculum, it doesn't mean that every single school is going to go off in a totally different direction. Um, I think you know, the, the vast majority of schools are going to retain a huge amount of, uh, of common curricular content, partly because there is that uh, assessment underpinning, but also because you know, we actually do have an idea of what works, and it, it, we, we don't have it completely right, but you know, there, there, there is a, a, a large common underpinning there. So I don't think we're going to see you know, 21,000 schools with 21,000 different curricula um, to the extent that will make it impossible for people to move between so you wouldn't necessarily agree with Tony Gardner that we need a, um, a, a grand board of subject experts all I, the time? I, let's put it this way. I say if we're going to have a national curriculum, then that would be a good thing. Right. Thank you very much. Uh, yes, I did think Dr. Tuber might have a long queue of people asking how to train teachers, particularly for, train parents, particularly from this audience. Um, Dr. John Gray, yes. Guy, actually. Guy, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Um, and I'm doing some work with uh, Cambridge International exams at present. Um, I was struck by Dale's comment, uh, less time teaching to the test might mean they do better in the test. And I'm reflecting on um, going back to the Deering report for the post-16 uh, curriculum, where he and Baroness Blackstone, who was then the minister, I think, who introduced it, were saying the problem in the UK is that the students here only studying for 15 hours a week. I mean, they're part-time students to get their three A-levels. And what Deering proposed was actually a change not only to the assessment, but also to the curriculum and enriched uh, um, uh, a contrasting curriculum for students. But we've never really, as uh, an education community, taken that on. So we have youngsters who 
in many schools you know, celebrate the fact that they can do it in a three-day week. Now, uh, at, at Farnborough, when I was principal there, we tried to we did introduce something called the transcript of enrichment, and we were engaging young people in more than three things, a minimum of four things in each of their uh, post-16 years. But the transcript of enrichment was used as another certificate to identify the various things that they had achieved during those two years. And curiously, it was the thing over which we had the most hassle in terms of youngsters complaining, so to speak, when they got their, tran their, 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 their transcript, that it didn't include enough of the things they'd done. So they were actually keen to focus upon not only the, the academic results, but also um, the, the, the enrichment activities in which they'd been engaged. And somehow, as a nation, I think, we've got to develop that notion of, of, of an holistic approach, not only in the qualifications... Uh, for exams, but also in a transcript which says this is what youngsters have achieved. And then you begin to get uh, 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 the, 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 the way of describing a youngster's whole achievements rather than just the academic ones. This has been tried several times. Those of you in the audience will remember better than I do. Have, have we not tried uh, transcripts of achievement several times in English history? Wasn't there a... I mean, AQA uh, looked at what we were doing. They developed the AQA back, yeah. and then they tried to charge us um, uh, for, 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 for including our work in their back. But it, it didn't really take off. I mean, because there's been no push, I think, to try to include this within um, describing what youngsters do, but both at uh, Key Stage 4 and at um, uh, Key Stage 5. So, I mean, John, I, I, you know, I absolutely take your point in terms of incentivising the pupils, but I think you know, it, it's, it's a very, very slippery road once you go back into trying to certificate stuff, because then you know, essentially you're in danger of recreating exactly the, the, the problems that we've all been talking about in, in the first place. So you know, I, I, I take your point in terms of encouraging pupils to do it, but you know, very, very difficult. As soon as you start trying to assess it, you start trying to quantify it, you start trying to put it down on paper, um, you know, are, are we in danger of recreating all the same problems again? As in, I will go skiing because that will tick a box. Uh, despite the fact I hate skiing. Yes, sir. In, in, in the middle, and then the gentleman down here on the right. Uh, John Fairhurst, immediate past president of ASCL. Um, a lot have been said about perverse incentives and perhaps not enough because actually assessment is driving the behavior of schools and we won't get the sort of um, value that things like have been developed at Farnborough and the trying to record the achievements, the wider achievements of the student body unless those are adequately recognised as achievements of the school as a whole. And I think that we've actually made a mistake in trying to slim down Ofsted so that it's a very quick check, um, because it's forced it to become very, very data-driven. And data means league tables and exam results. Hence the huge importance that schools have to give to those exam scores and their, their fear of 
experimenting and pursuing the wider thing. We've heard, though, today from a very prestigious school that I can't say is immune from that pressure, but, of course, it's standing in a position of great strength. And uh, I enjoyed the presentation because from the independent sector, from Westminster School, were coming values which I would hold dear as the head teacher of a comprehensive. But I'm not in that prestigious position. I've got to keep looking over my back, and Ofsted cometh, the bogeyman cometh. The league tables are part of the problem, but there's a greater and bigger one about the way in which schools are actually pressured into certain behaviours. So, sorry, if I can just pick you up on that. Um, less than 25 years ago, it, it was fashionable to say an assessment-led curriculum was a good thing. How do we get from there to here? Is, would you place all of that on accountability measures? Well, plainly, I think that what has happened in the last probably more than 25 years has been a, a sea change. Competition has been mentioned as one of the dangerous factors. Exam boards perhaps competing with each other, schools competing with each other. So actually being led by the system into doing things that they'd rather not. Um, you see that in all kinds of things. Um, examiners are reporting that the maturity of language in the examinations now is declining. Now, they don't know the age of the candidates. But what I do know, it's stop practice now for schools to enter just about everybody into English and Mathematics GCSE at year 10 and in November of year 11 um, in order to try and maximize the impact on the league table. I'm not at all sure that this is in the interests of youngsters, unless they are particularly clever, to be put forward into that accelerated program. But it's happening. It's happening all over because of league table and Ofsted pressures. Would other people agree with that, generally? Um, sorry, this gentleman down here uh, near the front. And then I saw a hand up there at the back. Okay, um, I'm Julian Stanley, uh, not Starkey from the University of oh, Warwick. Oh, I beg you. <laughs> um, I mean, I think um, Roger Francois made a really good sort of principal point in, in, his, in, in his statement about the need for curriculum and assessment to be in sync. I mean, I think if they're not in sync, whichever one is driving the other, we, we, we have problems. We've heard a lot about the diversity of curriculum and the diversity of the processes by which curriculum can be designed. And I think there's a lot of admiration about, you know, the innovation, about the engagement of students and teachers and of representative sectors in that and what can come out of that and how that can help the curriculum be more responsive to the challenges which Graham has outlined to us in the future. But if we disconnect assessment from that, then I think we're going to get problems. And it seemed to me to some extent Dale was sort of saying, well, let's back off the assessment, let's not assess everything, you know, so that, you know, I think we get into difficulties because we then find the assessed part of the curriculum assumes uh, an overwhelming importance and that distorts what goes on. So I do think that we need assessment to respond to this greater diversity of, of curriculum and I do think we need to look at ways in which assessment can do that. And I think that's where, you know, experienced assessments like Cambridge Assessment come in to show us how you can have more diverse, more flexible, more responsive assessments which nevertheless does meet standards. So that assessment methods can be variable, but nevertheless can meet standards which, which have a national or even international credibility. It's work to be done, but, but it is happening. And, and in many countries, there's you know, interesting innovations in that area. 
Thank you very much. Some, yes, that gentleman at the back there. Uh, and then Andrew there and there and um, then there. Steve, Stephen Cox from Osiris Educational. Fascinating. And I'll go back to Westminster School. I loved that presentation. I thought it back in this... <laughs> in history uh, says an awful lot for us. Uh, the whole aim of exams, though, surely external exams, is about securing standards, and particularly in this case, securing academic standards, which it does pretty well. Teachers are quite good at judging academic standards. More difficult comes in the other objectives of schools and what they're trying to do, the social-emotional cohesion that they're trying to pass on. That's a more difficult problem. So we've never tended to assess in that area or look externally how that's working. Go a little bit further into the economic one, which I think was a beautiful one on JCB, looking at it. The problem with an economic model and actually looking at the productive capacity of pupils when they leave schools is every pupil is going to take a different path and if we ingrain that too early in schools it will shut down some of the opportunities. Mm. I think sitting right at the end of that though and probably more important is the spirit and the spirit in each individual child and how we develop that. What each child's meant to do with their lives. Once they start to realise that, become a little more goal orientated in where they're trying to get they've got a chance. Now how does that happen? How can you give time for that? Well, if we keep squeezing with exams and every single reform in the last hundred and odd years seems to be throwing a little bit more into the curriculum, it means that the whole system gets squeezed. There's no space for kids to reflect, to become reflexive, to actually start to know themselves, to understand themselves at 16, to know what they're meant to do with their lives. I'll leave it there. Can I just pick you up on that? Do you... If one goes down that route, do you not then link into what Simon Liebers was saying, which is becoming, in a sense, even more instrumentalist, but just not with exams? Uh, I mean, I, when I came out of school, and I'm sure several of us here, when I, we came out of university, I didn't know what I wanted to do, and that's not, uh, that wasn't uncommon then. It seems to be fairly rare now. Um, so should we be delivering well-educated young people who don't know what they want to do because they don't know what they can do? They could do anything. We were delivering good young able pupils. Yeah, in the 1970s, they estimate what Carl Rogers' work seems to have turned up 33% of kids when they left school were independent learners. That figure's now down to 20%. Yeah, and falling. So that's what we're actually getting. We're spoon fitting kids, and what happens is they learn the shape of the spoon. And that's what the system will start to produce, and it will continue to produce that. What kids really need to know in a multidimensional global world is what they are meant to do. And once they get in touch with that, they've got a chance then of their own volition to move forward. Now, to get the space to do that, you're going to have to practice abandonment. Yeah? Now, every exam board I see has a vested interest in selling more examinations. So I don't see that they're in the right position necessarily to be practising that sort of level of abandonment to provide that space. Now, whether school teachers are the right people to be developing those sorts of skills or whether we really need to be thinking about that. But, I mean, Csikszentmihalyi said we've been educating kids for 20,000 generations tacitly. It's only five generations of mass education. 20, 30, 100 generations it may take us to get it right. That's what we're facing. <laughs> Well, that's, that's a long-term task. Yes, sir. Yeah, Stuart Sutherland, crossbench in the House of Lords. Uh, one basic principle, all administrative structures gradually distort, and that has to be kept in mind. Um, we've introduced quite a number over the last 20 years, national testing, national curriculum, national inspection, uh, national formulas for funding schools. They distort for two reasons. One is they have an inherent distortion factor. Structures just do. 
Uh, and secondly, they are meant to control human behavior. And happily, we are still all inventive, creative people. And we spend a lot of our activity getting around the structures. That means we shouldn't be surprised if suddenly the curriculum is being dominated by assessment or the other way around. What we have to do is be creative in how we begin to recalibrate them. Occasionally, you'll throw a structure out, but not all that often. Um, second point, if I can, um, assessment. Uh, there isn't one thing called assessment, though quite often in shorthand, not surprisingly, speakers have implied that there is a single thing called assessment. Uh, a, it's not equated with exams, though it includes exams, but you have to ask what's the point of assessment? What are we doing it for? And some of it we're doing every teacher who's any good um, assesses pupils in the classroom. That's part of the educational process. Unless you know whether they've uh, taken on board what you've been doing for the last six months, um, the, there's little point in continuing to the next. So you assess pupils individually. Uh, assessment is carried out for the benefit of uh, universities, and that was my background. We've dominated bits of the system, but at least we knew what we wanted. And that's not always true of those who use assessment tables. Uh, but it has distorted because not uh, all pupils, even with the current participation rates, will aim or want to go on to universities. Assessment equally assesses teachers. It assesses schools. And all these things are worthwhile. But it's different forms of assessment uh, should apply. Uh, it assesses, and this is the one we don't really notice, government policy. The only trouble is when the answers come up, McCavity's not there because the ministers have moved on to something else. But there is a very important role in national assessment in assessing whether policies have worked. Think of a comprehensivization, extending pupil choice, um, the, uh, extending the curriculum, a whole range of policies that if you're a decent researcher going through the results could tell you something about what in these policies have been productive and what haven't. And that kind of assessment, I'd like to see you played up. Uh, and then lastly, so i stop in a minute. Um, or it was interestingly, our two overseas speakers were the two who mentioned parents. Hmm. And that, that's, that's the sort of uh, ghost at the feast, so to speak, because parents drive this. That's why you won't get away from league tables unless you start to point out to parents what the implications are of what we're doing now. Thank you. I'd, I'd like to, because Richard ra uh, raised performance measures um, and uh, said we should keep changing them. Uh, do you want to sort of come in on that? Um, well, yes. I mean, that, that was an observation based on my own experience in, 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 in business, where um, uh, management by KPIs gen tends to make everyone focus on how to make the KPIs look good. Um, and the trick, therefore, for those who are the customers of the KPIs is to keep changing them slightly and make sure they're focused on the, um, uh, the, the overall outcome. Um, that's quite a subtle thing to do, particularly in, a, a, in something as big as the education system. Um, uh, but I think it does cut to the heart of, you know, what are the league tables for? What are the assessment for? Mm. Um, I notice there's a debate going on here, I think, about prescription in terms of, you know, what should the curriculum include and should it be rigid versus the freedom to innovate amongst schools. And we, I think we all instinctively want to set schools free to, to, to come up with new things and so on. On the other hand, um, freedom and anarchy are perhaps uh, a little closely related, and uh, I think we, um, you know, we're nervous about that, and we're right to be. 
Um, I mean, as an employer, what do I use assessment for? Um, we certainly have hurdle qualifications. Um, we had 9,000 applications for 40 apprenticeships last year. Um, and we have to use a benchmark of something like five GCSEs as a simple expedient administrative mechanism of dealing with that number of applicants. Um, and so, you know, we certainly use that. Having said that, once a pupil has got into the interview room uh, with, the, um, with the hurdle qualifications, I don't care where the school is in the league tables. I don't actually care whether they've scraped five Cs or whether they've got 11 A stars. It's actually what they tell me across the table, what I make of them as an individual, what I assess their uh, attitudes and, uh, and, and potential to be. Um, so assessment certainly has its place. We've got to have that hurdle mechanism. We've got to have that benchmarking. And as an employer, we, we need that. And certainly we don't, we don't welcome the proliferation of different qualifications. It makes um, operating a fair and equitable recruitment process very difficult um, because we don't understand them. We haven't got time uh, as, as, as employers rather than educators to understand a vast plethora of qualifications. Um, you know, so we need that. We need that role of assessment. But that's it. Uh, that is the limit of it as far as uh, I as an employer are concerned. And I'm far more interested in, in the breadth of the, of the broader learning um, that, a, that, a, that a student or, a, or an applicant has received. So, yes, we need um, a certain amount of prescription. Um, certainly in science and engineering, there are some basics that people just need to know. Uh, we want schools to educate for a career, not train for a job. And that's perhaps a, a large company's perspective rather than a small one's. But... Um, you know, we want them to teach the, the basics that will, in, that will underpin their understanding of tomorrow's technology as well as today's. And we want that to be thorough. We want that to be there and we want to be, yeah, for that to be re recoverable in, in, in many years' time. Um, but let's not go too far with it. So this is about balance. It's about common sense. I think there's plenty of it out there. Um, and uh, we just need to find collectively a mechanism for, for reaching that optimal solution, I think. So you're asking for deep learning, but using the qualifications as a mere cut point. Um, well, it depends on what you mean by deep. I mean, there are certain, certain fundamentals that need to be there. Um, and, you know, one would hope that the qualification would test that, uh, that, that those fundamentals are indeed there. Um, but I don't think we need... Um, I mean, let me give you an illustration, if I may. It's very important that um, certainly science, scientists and engineers understand basic trigonometry um, and that the angles in a triangle add up to 180 degrees, whatever. Um, but I'm not at all interested in whether they can label an isosceles triangle or, or an equilateral triangle, some of this um, uh, sort of um, froth, if you like, around it. This is something that's easy to do in tests, and I think education, therefore, likes to do that kind of thing. Um, it's about underpinning that, those really important fundamentals that will allow them to understand new things tomorrow, but not testing for minutiae. And I, and I fear that some of our exam uh, syllabuses focus too much on that because it's easy to assess. So let's test what's important because that does matter. Um, we need a, a, a mechanism of error trapping serially failing schools and perhaps even serially failing teachers. Um, but... Uh, let's not let that drive things too hard. And I fear that's the trap we've, we've fallen into in recent years. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, Chris McGovern, uh, chairman of the campaign for real education and a voice of parents because we represent several thousand parents. Uh, I'm going to lift the gloom slightly because as a parent, um, one notices that in the last 25 years, we've seen that the curriculum in schools 
has increased standards, raised standards. There's been a, an improvement over the last 25 years, unprecedented in the history of education. And here we are, gloomily discussing this, when we should actually be partying. Or is this all a lie? Second thing I'd like to say is that we've talked about looking forward, looking forward to the future, and yet in the report by the National Curriculum Review expert body, they pointed to Singapore as an example of a very successful education system. Singapore, as its school leaving exam, uses the exam we scrapped 25 years ago, the O-level. It was outdated and Victorian, and it was scrapped. And finally, as someone who's taught for 35 years, in primary schools, in secondary schools, all ages, all abilities. Let me just tell you, exams are not the most important thing for a child. The curriculum is not the most important thing for a child. What's important for a child is the quality of the teacher. If you get the quality of the teacher right, then everything else falls into place. That's all I want to say. Thank you very much. Um, this lady down here had a question. Uh, James. And I think, yes, that gentleman next. Hello. Um, this question is just it's out to everyone, sorry, actually. Your, your oh, sorry, name. my name is Jackie Beckford-Walker. I'm head of curriculum at Hillcroft College, which is the National Residential College for Women, and we're based in Surbiton. Um, this question is to all the panel, actually. Um, can you tell me what creative ways um, you're... What was your doing to creatively encourage young women and women in general to engage in science and engineering... And are the current assessments that you're using probably putting them off? Uh, that's a very, very good question. I'm going to add a little something onto it because there is uh, also an, un, an unspoken or uh, sort of a minor ideological battle going on with some people claiming that the curriculum has been feminized as a whole, which is uh, militating against boys. Um, so I'm going, to, I'm going to lump them all in together to give them a real challenge. Uh, who wants to pick this one up first? Very happy to. Um, the, the, how to get a greater female participation in um, the STEM subjects, uh, particularly the non-life sciences one, has been a challenge, I think, for education for at least the last 30, 40 years from what I've read. Um, the, the number of female, what I call non-bio-STEM graduates, um, has been stubbornly at about 12%, I think, for, for several decades. I don't have any magic answers. I think um, the perception of engineering is part of it. You know, it's not about hard hats and blue overalls. Um, my company um, certainly employs a lot of people like that, um, and that's fine. We need them. They're very, very important. Um, but it's a lot more than that. It's clean, it's clever, it's important. Uh, and I think we have to get that message across to uh, the population generally, and I hope that will address some of the traditional uh, barriers and so on. Um, certainly as one employer, I mean, we are trying to get out there and talk about what we do and show people um, how the real world is different from their perceptions. Um, but I don't have any magic answers to this female participation issue. Uh, I wish I did, and I'd look for this, this audience perhaps to give us advice. But um, we, um, you know, we must crack this problem and we must change it. It's absolutely imperative. Graham, do you want to just pick yeah. on that? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think as well? in, in, if you look at the, the STEM subject area, and that is one area where higher education institutions have been more active, perhaps, in trying to engage with schools and colleges, particularly around the agenda of, of encouraging uh, more 
uh, young girls and women to go into to STEM subjects in HE via, uh, via opportunities for uh, pupils to actually use and experience elements of HE in terms of both the physical capital and the human resource there. In terms of what further one could do, I would think the need to the problem there is they need to work earlier. I mean, what we do know is children's perceptions of the labour market are actually formed fairly early. It's a misnomer to suggest that by year seven or eight they don't have clear ideas of where they want to go in the future. They do. They may be realistic ones. They form perceptions. Many actually are fairly good ideas. They form perceptions of where they want to go, often actually on gender stereotypical lines. It's finding a, we need to find a motivation to encourage those in HE, those in the labour market, to work earlier to do that, which again is against their incentives at the moment. But, uh, yeah, and I think that there is an advantage there. But also, of course, this has been funded work, uh, encouraged HEI to engage with uh, children regarding uh, STEM subjects particularly uh, uh, young girls as well. What will happen when that funding stream ends, which it will do this year, we will see. But there has been work there. Yes, can you? Uh, Paul Pritchard, just to say that um, three things really on relation to this. First of all, we used to, or we still do, support um, some specialist schools um, who uh, young, run young engineers clubs. And it was absolutely fascinating, whereby we used to have a 50-50 split of the gender uh, up to the age of about 16, and then all of a sudden the stereotypical uh, took over, and we saw the decline in the, in the girls' numbers who were pursuing uh, uh, engineering. Um, I think the, one of the issues that has been very useful, it, we hold some conferences for young girls to see what their role model, some role models uh, are doing and getting them to explain the challenges and the excitement that they experience with some of the more challenging engineering uh, opportunities, etc. Um, we've seen some success of that, but as somebody else has said, there is an enormous amount of work to be done in this area. Anybody else on the panel want to pick that up? Um, I, was, I was just going to say that I do think that it has to start very early. I mean, yeah. um, others have said that too, but the... the if you can start from young people's interests, and, and as I said before, I have a five-year-old, I know the kinds of questions that are being asked from a very early age. If you can key into that and develop the sort of thinking and the sort of attitudes that will lead into studying STEM subjects and make it obvious that that's what you're doing so that as, as girls particularly, but actually across the board, as people start to think about what subjects they want to do, they can see that the questions they were asking about the world, about the way things work, trying to take things apart and put things back together again, actually lead into that more formal education. If we're not careful, we start the, the kind of what I call the, the game playing too early, where you're learning the rules of the game and you don't understand what the relevance of that is to your your to the world to the world in which you live, and I, again, I would say that's that's not just a, a a way of encouraging girls into the profession, but a way of broadening access into the STEM subjects more widely. I'm afraid, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have to finish it there. I'm just being reminded we are massively over, um, and we still have John Coles uh, to speak. Um, so I'm afraid I'm going to have to wrap that up. I can see lots and lots of hands going up left, right, and centre. Um, but I shall now invite John Coles to um, address us. As I say, you all know of him. I